Hey everyone and welcome back to another Pedra re-release Monday. October is Eczema Awareness Month, so in honor of that we are re-releasing our series Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children. This was one of the very first multi-episodic series that Pedra produced back in late 2020. This is the first webinar of the series, Pediatric Atopic Dermatitis, New and Emerging Therapies and Overview. If you'd like to view this video in its entirety, follow the link in the show notes. Greetings everyone, and welcome to uh, a PEDRA virtual education event. And uh, we decided to put together a series on uh, atopic dermatitis, really geared at a, a high level to uh, pediatric dermatologists. And um, we had actually um, decided to do this. We put in for a competitive grant um, to do uh, um, education on atopic dermatitis and surprisingly got the grant and it allowed us to put together a program uh, like we wanted to do um, uh, with the PEDRA. And so we have assembled a, a set of programs that uh, uh, we're gonna do to discuss really all that's happening in this world of pediatric atopic dermatitis, trying to balance the practical issues of what we're doing now with our traditional and new medicines, but also very much to look at what's coming down the pike that I think can influence our, our care as well. I guess if we can go on to the next slide. So our, our faculty and group who have uh, helped us to plan this is myself uh, from UCSD um, and uh, Bob Gang. So Bob is a pediatric allergist, assistant professor of medicine and pediatrics at UCSD and at Grady Children's Hospital. He's co-director of a Allergy Asthma Foundation-sponsored UCSD Severe Asthma Program, as well as co-director of our Multidisciplinary Atopic Dermatitis Program and president of the San Diego Allergy Society. And then we have John Davis, the professor of dermatology and pediatrics and division chair of clinical derm and director of the PEDS-DERM section at um, uh, the section of pediatric derm at Mayo Clinic. Dawn's also one of the two people, along with Rob Sidbury, who are going to be chairing the NAD guidelines on atopic dermatitis. Uh, Mega Tolleson, Associate Professor of Dermatology and Peds, Consultant of, uh, in Dermatology and Pediatric Adolescent Medicine at Mayo um, as well. Um, and she'll be uh, joining us for one of the major talks tonight. And then Linus Tom, Clinical Professor of Derm and Peds and Fellowship Director at Radium UCSD. It was actually the three UCSDers who, uh, who had like schemed to do this. Um, and we uh, invited uh, Dawn and Vega as the, uh, as the sort of committee and co-faculty. And over the two webinar programs, we uh, will um, set up with some of us as faculty and some of us as panelists. Okay, so without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Mega to discuss uh, where we are with, with uh, biologics from pediatric AD perspective. All right. Well, thanks, Larry. Um, and thanks to all of you. Um, I'm really excited to be able to talk about biologics and atopic dermatitis. I think, you know, all of us um, on this uh, webinar understand the importance um, of the biologics and atopic dermatitis and, you know, kind of the exciting landscape that we're seeing um, now and, and experiencing for our patients. Um, next slide. So this is one of those pictures that, you know, uh, makes my head spin, um, but I think it's important to kind of, 
you know, get a, get a view of, uh, this is like a picture of the mechanisms um, involved in atopic dermatitis or a lot of the mechanisms and kind of where all the potential targets uh, for a lot of the, you know, emerging medications are. Um, next, you can see, um, you know, all of these targets that are in boxes here are uh, targets that some of the medicines that we're going to talk about tonight um, actually focus on, and mostly we're going to focus on dupilumab since, you know, that's where we have um, so much data and um, a decent amount of experience and, and approval on kids. But then we'll talk about a few of the other emerging biologics uh, briefly as well. Next slide. So I'm going to actually take us through the data, and this is really a timely uh, webinar because there's actually been a lot of uh, data published recently um, on, on dupilumab. This, of course, um, has been um, known for quite some time. This is the uh, phase three randomized controlled trial in adolescence, so ages 12 to less than 18. Um, and this was a 16-week uh, study and these there were 250 kids and they were randomized either to uh, dupilumab at 200 every two weeks, 300 every two weeks, 300 every four weeks, or placebo. And here are graphs of their primary endpoints. And so on the left, uh, the primary endpoint of EZ75 is shown there. And you can see the placebo is on the bottom. So the higher is better. Um, and both of the dupilumab uh, treatment um, or all of the dupilumab treatment arms were superior um, in achieving EZ75 at week 16. And on the right is the other primary endpoint, which is IgA zero or one. And again, you can see uh, placebo is on the bottom. And so the higher, the better. And all the treatment arms were, were um, better in achieving IgA zero or one at week 16. Next slide. They also looked at some secondary endpoints, um, and you can see here uh, in all of these, the lower the better, and placebo is, is the top line in all of these. And so uh, the top left is, is the percentage change in easy. Uh, the top right is the percentage change in the pruritus numerical rating scale score. Uh, the bottom left is the change in poems, uh, so you know, a patient input measure as well, and then um, the bottom right is the CDLQI, and you can see um, you know, improvement in all of these secondary measures in the treatment arms um, you know, superior to uh, placebo. And it, you know, as far as adverse effects, they uh, noticed um, the ones that will kind of mention a similar infection rate actually across the treatment and placebo arms. There was, as we all know, an increased prevalence of conjunctivitis in the treatment arms, so about 10% in the treatment arms versus 5% in the placebo arms, and then an increase in injection site reactions. Next slide. So this, um, this is another study um, or another you know, publication uh, looking at the adolescent population and actually just looking at clinically meaningful responses. And so this is a, you know, there were a subset of patients that didn't achieve IgA zero or one. And so what happened with those patients? Um, so if you look, the top left is easy 50. Um, the, and then on the, on all of the graphs, you know, the higher, the better. And so the treatment arms are higher than placebo in achieving easy 50 on the top right in a, uh, um, in achieving uh, pruritus of, uh, greater than or equal to three-point improvement, the, top, the bottom left uh, CDLQI change of uh, six or more, 
And then on the bottom right, it was uh, having any of these clinically meaningful responses. And the clinically meaningful responses, uh, the, the numbers involved were uh, set based on prior published thresholds. So this was a post-hoc analysis that showed clinically meaningful improvement in, in many of the patients that didn't achieve their primary endpoints. Uh, next slide. So this is from the same study, and they kind of did these nice um, uh, Venn diagrams. If you if you kind of geek out like me, I love Venn diagrams. Um, but you can see how many in each group, placebo or each of the treatment arms, uh, achieved each of these clinically meaningful responses, and then the overlap in the middle of you know how many, what percentage achieved all three. Next slide. So this one actually shows an open-label extension. So if you remember the first couple of studies are out to week 16, um, this actually goes out to week 48. And this was um, first, uh, this, a lot of these were in Europe. And so you can see that um, uh, it's weight-based dosing. So it's two milligrams per kilogram or four milligrams uh, per kilogram per kilogram. And later the open label extension was changed to more of a fixed dosing. Um, but if you see here um, uh, on the open label extension, the parameters that they reported or the mean change of, you know, baseline easy, uh, the patients that got to easy 50, the patients that got to easy 75, and then the patients that, you know, were um, at IgA zero or one by the end of this 48 weeks. And you can see in all of these, there's a pretty you know, um, rapid improvement initially. And then overall, there was pretty much sustained improvement in almost all of these uh, measures, uh, although at a slower rate and not quite as dramatic. Next. So overall, you know, I think um, the studies have uh, shown that dupilumab is safe, um, it's efficacious, um, the, the effect lasts the uh, safety loss. Um, there was a higher prevalence of conjunctivitis in this open label extension, you know, just because we got to more weeks uh, on the medication. They had a 16 to 18% um, prevalence of conjunctivitis here. But overall, this all led to FDA approval in the adolescent population last year, as most of us know. Next slide. So then how about the younger kids? Um, this is uh, a phase three randomized control trial. This is the data that's actually currently in press. So it's, it's hot off the press in children ages six to less than 12. Um, and in this uh, study, uh, this was also out to 16 weeks, and kids were randomized to um, 300 milligrams every four weeks or a weight-based dosing of 100 or 200 milligrams every two weeks if they were less than 30 kilograms or more than uh, 30 kilograms um, or uh, placebo. Uh, the difference here though, if you notice, all of these patients actually were also still allowed to use topical steroids, so low to mid-potency topical steroids. And this is different than the adolescent trial where you know, no topical steroids were used um, uh, as an adjunctive treatment. And so if you uh, can see here that uh, the primary endpoint was IgA of zero or one, and um, the uh, pink and the blue lines were the treatment arms, and they performed you know, superior to placebo uh, in uh, the less than 30 kilograms and the greater than 30 kilogram children. Next slide. And then, um, yeah, this was uh, the, so on the top is a co-primary endpoint of EZ75. And again, you can see, you know, good efficacy at, at both of those uh, treatment arms. 
um, at less than 30 kilograms and at greater than 30 kilograms. Um, at greater than 30 kilograms, it um, seemed like the 200 milligrams every two weeks did better than the fixed dose of 300, whereas um, it was the opposite for the less than 30 kilograms. The, the weight-based 100 milligrams every two weeks didn't, didn't do quite as well as the 300 every four weeks. And then in the bottom, uh, that set of graphs shows the percentage change in easy. So you can just see kind of improvement over that 16-week period. Next. Um, so this is actually uh, an open-label extension um, of this age group of the 6 to less than 12. And this goes out to week 52. And you can see here, so, you know, kind of the lower you get, the better on the left and the higher you get, the better on the right. And on the left is the percentage change from baseline and easy score. And on the right is the percentage of patients achieving easy 75. Um, and again, this is two milligrams versus, uh, per kilogram versus four milligrams per kilogram. This is primarily was uh, done in Europe. Um, next slide. And here's some other um, measures uh, that they looked at in that open label extension up to 52 weeks. So uh, top left is the IGA of zero or one. Um, you can see that um, um, uh, the patients overall did, did really quite well. And then paritis in the middle, change in body surface area on the right, um, and then, you know, SCORED and also CDLQI, the, uh, you know, quality of life. So. Meg, if I can... Yeah. Um... We're going to come into discussion, but one of the interesting things is that when we present the data, this is how we get the data, and it, it obviously is, is the mixed response of the population studied. And then we go into practice, and we have some patients who are incredible responders, right? So when you look at the body surface area, in a year, you're in the 50% decrease in BSA, which isn't that... Is that right? Yeah, it's like 55. It's not as impressive as you might think, at least for me, but I think it's because it mixes in incredible responders from maybe partial responders. I just want to know what your thoughts of that translating the data to practice. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think, you know, it, it, um, it does, doesn't look as impressive when you look at the, the percentage body surface area involvement. Um, but then I think when you look at you know, other measures like the um, um, score ed and the quality of life and the improvement in paritis, you know, those look a lot better. So, you know, it does seem that the translation to practice overall is really favorable. So I think it's great that, you know, we look at all these secondary measures. So anyway, you know, as, as we all probably know, this was also FDA approved just recently in May. Um, uh, and again, you know, kind of a similar rate of conjunctivitis as we were seeing in some of the other studies. Next slide. So overall, um, you know, we have pretty good dosing in kids that are six or older, uh, you know, based on weight, the, the greater than 60 kilograms, the loading dose of 600 and the 300 milligrams every other week, and then kind of adjusted dosing uh, for lower weight children uh, going down from there based on the, on the studies. Next slide. So, you know, an interesting question is, well, what about the kids younger than that? We don't have really um, a lot of the data yet. So what do we do for kids that are less than six that might need uh, dupilumab or might benefit from it? And so this was a study that Elaine Siegfried and many others um, collaborated on 
reporting off-label use of dupilumab before, um, you know, really a lot of this data was available. It was published last year. And, and really, the, um, I want to draw your attention to the zero to five age range. There weren't a lot of patients, but on average, a loading dose of 6.5 milligrams per kilogram uh, was used, and then a maintenance dose of 4.7 milligrams per kilogram was used. Um, they didn't parse it out into the, the lower age groups versus the higher age groups, but overall, you know, two-thirds of the patients had greater than a, or equal to a two-point improvement in IgA. Next slide. So this is again just you know really current uh, data. This is uh, the uh, trial, the six months to less than six years phase two trial. Um, you can see that this goes out to just four weeks, you know, because it's, er it's early phase two data. Um, but this study is interesting because they used a sequential 2H cohort and two dosing group design. So uh, in this age group of six months to six years, they first enrolled. Uh, old, the older children, the two to six, uh, two to less than six-year-old group, um, and did the two dosing, um, and then they enrolled the younger kids, the six months to two years, and then you know sequential dosing. And overall, um, uh, the left is the change in easy score, the right is the change in SCORAD, and the um, the brown and yellow colors, the fall colors, uh, those are the higher dosing uh, cohorts, so the six milligram per kilogram cohorts. And you can see they, the six milligram dosing cohorts each you know, performed a bit better than the lower ones. Next slide. And then um, here is a, a change in EZ75, and then on the right, uh, the change in the uh, peak pruritus uh, scale. And again, um, at age at, or at four weeks, uh, the six milligram per kilogram cohort um, looks like it's it's performing a little bit better. Next slide. So you know this is an interesting um, point that I think will be interesting for us to discuss. You know for translation of practice that I think uh, at this point we're noticing that there are a lot of kids that are less than six that might benefit from dupilumab. People are using it, and it'll be interesting to talk about our shared sort of experience and and practice. Um, and we'll have we'll leave a little bit of time to to talk about that. Um, in a little bit. Next slide. So conjunctivitis, you know, it, that's the, the main side effect that we really think about and that we talk about. And in all the trials in kids um, and also in adults, it does seem to be around a 10% prevalence uh, compared to 5% um, in, in, in um, placebo groups, um, you know, give or take a little bit. And so this is actually a recent um, meta-analysis, uh, systematic review meta-analysis of efficacy um, and also adverse effects. And of course, most of these were um, adult studies. And so that is a caveat there. Um, but they did find that you know, in, in real world, so this is a real world study, in real world, the efficacy was pretty consistent with, with the clinical trial data um, for dupilumab. But when looking at adverse effects and specifically looking at conjunctivitis, they actually got about a 26% prevalence um, when pooling all of these studies of conjunctivitis. And it, it, it tended to develop at a median of about six weeks. Um, so that was interesting compared to the kind of the clinical trial data. Next slide. So overall, the recommendations, you know, that have uh, been published and that many people are using are, you know, to not rub, to use cold compresses, to start artificial tears right away, and then if all of those, you know, fail, uh, to refer to ophthalmology. Next slide. 
Um, there are a few other um, side effects uh, that have been noted that are you know, potentially emerging that, um, that, that need to be considered, and they are reported in, in many in this uh, systematic review as well. But one is this new onset facial redness. Uh, a couple of adult studies reported a 5 to 10% prevalence in adult patients. There's only one uh, single center retrospective review in kids, and in that study, 7 of 24 of their kids treated with dupilumab experienced this facial redness. Um, there's also been some reports of arthritis um, in adults, and then there have been some reported cases of psoriasis-like um, eruption in um, adults as well. Next slide. And then um, one of the, the last things to, uh, that I wanted to bring up was uh, vaccination considerations. And so in, uh, in adults, um, uh, there were, the adult population was given Tdap and meningococcal at week 12, and the immune response was assessed in the dupilumab arms and also in the placebo arms. Um, and in, in general, the immune responses were similar in both of those arms. And so the conclusion is that, you know, non-live vaccines are safe and effective in adults, and the prescribing information actually of dupilumab at this point recommends avoiding live virus vaccines. And so I think, you know, these are some of the kind of important sort of things to consider as we translate into practice. Of course, in our population, you know, vaccines, immunizations are, are a big deal. And so we wanted to take a little bit of time just to, to discuss this amongst uh, the panel, uh, uh, these side effects, vaccination, conjunctivitis. So I'd like to open it up to my colleagues. Thomas, yeah, so I actually had a five-year-old off-label who I was ready to start, and I checked on his immunization status, and with COVID, he hadn't had his, his, uh, his boosters, because they do measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella, between four and six is the AAP schedule. So, um, you know, generally people will give the vaccines and wait four weeks, which we think is a reasonable time period, but I think you just have to take the, you have to take the vaccination history. So, I mean, I have a comment about the, the vaccinations. I'm not sure whether this is just being overly cautious from the standpoint of, um, of the manufacturers because I don't understand why the non-live vaccines would not be safe and effective um, in these patients. I mean, there's, there's really from a uh, mechanistic standpoint, I don't really see how, I mean, I'm glad that the data panned out that there was no, no difference because we look at vaccine challenges all the time in our primary immune deficiency patients or people who think they have immune deficiencies and we, we do this on a routine basis. We don't even know, I mean, at what point, I mean, some of these titers wane in normal individuals. And, and, and again, I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a little bit interesting that they're looking at that from a standpoint of, of efficacy and safety. And then, of course, even uh, the live vaccines, um, dupilumab is not considered to be an immunosuppressant biologic. And the blockade of uh, IL-4 and IL-13, I really don't see how that plays a significant role in host um, uh, microbe defense. Um, unless you're dealing with uh, helminthic infections or parasitic infections. So, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm not that concerned regarding uh, even the live vaccines from the standpoint because it's not an immune suppression um, biologic. It looks like there's some comments from the, uh, the chat. That, uh, yeah. Izzy Andrews has seen a psoriasiform drug eruption. We're starting to hear about these. We recently had a, a child with polyarthralgia. Uh, I just newly started Doopy and see rheumatologists have just looked at them. Um, that would be the first 
teenager, because the, the adult the cases have been in adults first, but we'll also have to you know rule out other other causes. Um, so, so I do want to make a comment about the about that because I mean we always think of sort of the different parts of the immune system. So, if you think about the the T cells, I mean the T two inflammation uh, representing or starting the acute phase of uh, atopic dermatitis, and then T one T seventeen kind of driving uh, psoriasis. And, and there's been people who've had, I mean, like, I mean, both, and I mean, that describes sort of as one goes up, but the other one kind of goes down the seesaw type of pattern. We did actually recently write um, uh, a case report that was uh, in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in practice. And Larry, this is a patient that you and I share, a patient who has uh, Shirk-Strauss syndrome and uh, who has uh, psoriasis as well as uh, pretty significant AD, and the patient was um, placed on a, um, a dupilumab, and the psoriasis did not improve uh, at all, and the atopic dermatitis improved, but the psoriasis also didn't worsen uh, in that particular patient. So, I mean, I mean that's that's an N of one that we uh, uh, that we have, but that's just um, clinical experience. Well, we're going to roll on to other biologics, but quickly a few other comments. So. So Rod Phillips is like, hey, uh, Bob said Doopy is immunosuppressive, it's not immunosuppressive. So in the U.S., the companies are allowed to say that it's not an immunosuppressive. They got verbiage are allowed to say that. It's an immune modulator, but the safety data is enough that they're allowed to say that. So you'll see some inconsistency, but we know it's an immune-mediated process, and to a degree, it suppresses an arm of the immune system, but that's where that sort of difference in verbiage is. Tori asked about nailing down the vaccine or no vaccine recommendation. Because they want to stay on label. Right now, on label is to avoid live vaccines. But yes, obviously, in their development of the process uh, of the potential labeling to younger age, they'll need to do vaccine trials. But in the meantime, when they started their younger age, if I'm incorrect, they'll turn to witness. I believe what they did is people had to be willing to forego their immunizations during the time yeah. course of the younger of the younger study at least the initial part of the study i don't think any of the studies and including most biologics have included the live vaccines i mean it is a safety thing but you can also imagine why the companies may not necessarily take that no you think they're just trying to they're trying to you protect know, and, um, you know to what tor's saying obviously the, the hope is though this I mean, we don't know it, right? But the hope is that if you're starting a younger kid earlier, are you going to modify the disease that they don't have to be on Dupixin for years, you know, Dupilumab for years and years? You hope maybe after two years, two, two to three years, you get them off, get their vaccines, and hopefully move along. Um, we'll come back to this, but let's roll on to the, yeah. the sort of quick run on the other biologics and then move uh -huh. over. Yeah, we could talk for an hour on, on this stuff. <laughs> It'd be great. So there are a few more on the horizon just to mention. Um, the one is tralokinumab, denial of 13 monoclonal antibody. Um, adult studies show efficacy, maybe less than dupilumab, maybe slower itch improvement. There's an adolescent trial that's closed, but uh, the data is not available. There's lebricizumab, which is an IL-13 monoclonal antibody. Next. And next slide. Um, this just shows the initial adult phase 2B study. Um, and basically all to take away from here is that all the treatment arms um, were better than placebo. Uh, next slide. So right now there is an adolescent trial that's uh, under in phase three right now. Um, and then there's nemolizumab, which is an IL-21 
uh, receptor um, antagonist monoclonal antibody. Uh, next slide. And so that one has my favorite name and probably I, I imagine it's going to have everyone's favorite name of these <laughs> biologics for our population. Um, but you can see here that um, uh, in percentage change in pruritus and easy score is uh, better uh, than um, um, placebo. So next. Actually, uh, there's a comment in the chat. You're right, it is 31. Sorry, um, that was a, a typo and a misspeak. So anyway, right now there's an adolescent trial that's closed and a, a two, ages 2 to 11 trial is uh, set to start soon. All right, and that's uh, that's all I have on, on the, the biologics. So. Well, that's great. And some of those trials are going to be coming your way because the ones that are going more pediatric over time are still looking for centers. Um, not necessarily easy to get revved up to do those trials, but they are going to be, uh, they're in the process of looking. So, you know, JAK inhibitors are not quite ready, but they're coming pretty soon in pediatrics because several of the drugs that are being developed as oral JAKs for AD um, have included 12-year-olds initially and in, in, in older uh, in their study. Next slide. Uh, well, actually, disclosures. We didn't do disclosures, uh, but I'll disclose because I'm pretty much involved in every company in a topic term. But so I've been either a consultant investigator or data safety monitoring board for Abby, Almoral, Asana, Titania, Dermavant, Demira, Forte, Galderma, Glenmark Insight, Leo Lilly, Matrices, Atsuka, Novartis, Pfizer, Regeneron, Sanofi, Genzyme, and Orthodermologics. And we're doing everything with everything's presented data that we discussed. So this is a different way of viewing the different pathways that mediate atopic derm and where the different um, uh, uh, therapeutic targets are. Um, and what I really want to do is to say that this is all done in the different pathways for the different cells, but we're going to be talking about what's happening in the left corner, which is really intracellular signaling, because that's where the jacks are doing their work. You can scoot to the next slide. We'll just scoot on. Yes. So, you know, it's, I, know I don't know Jack, if you attended the SPD, uh, two SPDs ago, we had a great discussion with a guy who found the receptors and did the work. But just remember that there are transducers that activate in the jack step pathway, and they're highly important in intracellular signaling. The inhibitors are um, or, or jackanibs, and they're important in a variety of inflammatory conditions, and that includes rheumatoid arthritis, myelofibrosis, and polycythemia vera. So certain ones affect cell line development, as well as our inflammatory dermatoses, which you're aware they're being developed for AD psoriasis, alopecia areata, and vitiligo. Next slide. So um, there are many different diagrams that point out um, the, the different receptors, but um, and you're going to get more and more sophisticated about this, unfortunately, over time, as we all have as we spend time with this. So there's Jack 1, Jack 2, Jack 3, and Type 2. I still don't know what happened to Type 1, but it didn't make it to the list. I don't think it exists. So these are, the, these are signaling cascades. But the big thing in translation to the right bottom is that there's different cytokine pathways that are associated with the activity and or inhibition of the different jacks. And, and, I'll, and, and, and um, Bob's going to go through a more, uh, a, a nicer looking diagram on the different families of the, of the jacks. But the punchline is that each drug is different in terms of its relative 
blockage of signals, and the signals associated with different cytokine profiles. Next slide. So remember that jacks aren't biologic, they're small molecules, so that so they're not MAMs, they're not they're not monoclonal antibodies, they're NIBs, so they're inhibitors, and uh, they're oral. And so one of the issues with biologics is that people don't like to stop and start biologics because of anti-monoclonal antibody antibodies that can end and um, 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 with uh, that may not be an issue with Jack, so it could be something that you could use for two, three months and stop and use again when you need them. But we'll figure that out over time. Next, um, so can I keep the Jack straight? I'm telling you, it's a. Uh, if you know this, that's great. I'm really impressed. Uh, I've, I'm learning it again and again and again. But we're, we're going to discuss three tonight that are specifically being developed for atopic dermatitis. That's abracitinib, eupadacitinib, and baricitinib. Abracitinib and eupadacitinib are selective JAK1s. Baricitinib is a selective JAK1 that has moderate activity against type 2 and very little to JAK3. Now, not being specifically developed for atopic dermatitis now, or tofacitinib, which is the JAK1-3, and roxolitinib, which is being developed as a topical agent for atopic dermatitis, come next week, and we'll be discussing that more in length as well as the, as well as the new uh, algorithms. And just by history, eupanacitinib and baricitinib are, are agents that are already approved for other conditions in rheumatoid arthritis and therefore have established labels and abracitinib, this is the first development of that drug for atopic dermatitis. Next slide. Um, so baricitinib has completed phase three studies without pediatrics being discussed really quickly. Abracitinib has both completed, completed phase three studies in 12-year-olds plus and presented the data, and they have a teen study that they announced the results yet, but they haven't presented the data. Eupadacitinib had study announcement, but hasn't yet presented the data, but they also had 12-year-olds plus. Next slide. So abracitinib is the first one we'll discuss, thought to modulate IL-413, 3122 TSLP. received a breakthrough designation from the FDA for treatment of atopic dermatitis. Next slide. The core phase three trials, the so-called J trials, are done. They included their monotherapy, where patients were not allowed to use topical corticosteroids. They had three dosing regimens, the placebo, the 100 milligram, and the 200 milligram. These were shorter studies than the biologic studies. These were 12-week studies, partially because these worked a little quicker. Patients were 12 years plus with moderate severe atopic dermatitis. They had a short washout of topical corticosteroids for just three days. Again, they weren't allowed to use... Uh, topical corticosteroids, or any rescue therapy during the 12 weeks. Next slide. The kind of results that you get with abracitinib, um, in the lower dose, you're getting results of clear, almost clear in the 28 and 44% range. In the higher dose, you're getting 38 to 44%. You're getting about 60% easy 75s in the, uh, um, um, in the uh, result. Now, this population, if you look at the baseline characteristics, they were, the, look at the less than 18 arm. So they had about 10 to 20% in one study, it was about 20% of the individuals were adolescents and the other it was only 10%. So it was a fair number, but not a big population. But there is a separate teen study that's coming as well. 
And just to the right, know that in, in the DUPI studies, of course, not comparable, not the same population, their EZ75 was about 47.7, and their IGA 0 to 1 in adults was about 37%. So they're, I mean, lower dose is sort of comparable, and higher dose seems to be stronger, but of course, it's not the same population. You really shouldn't compare like that. Next slide. Um, so safety standpoint for this. Um, so the, the JAK inhibitors, we get more concerned, but this is a new drug. And um, so the serious adverse events were very low. If you give me a click, I think I'm going to pop in with some of the, um, should go to the next slide officially. Yeah. So venous thromboembolism was not seen in this, uh, in this study, which is really good because that's a concern with JAKs. There was one death, it was a sudden cardiac death in a woman in her 70s. Eczema herpeticum didn't have a lot of overrepresentation. There was a little bit of acne, but not a lot of acne is seen in one study and not the other, because that's another thing that we've seen with some of the jacks. But give me one more click. Take a look at the nausea at the 200 dose, 14% and 20%. So this did get better over time, but there's definitely issues in terms of the tolerance of this drug, at least at the higher dose, at least within the first few days, so discontinuation rates were low. Next slide. So that abracidinib has some lab uh, have laboratory changes in them. Um, in this particular study, hemoglobin neutrophils and lymphocytes were fine. Um, one patient in one of the studies decreased because of a decrease in platelet count. Platelet count decreases over time. No clinical sequelae or hemorrhagic events. In the other study, there was a reduction in platelets that was seen at 26% with the 200 milligram dose, but not clinically translation to a problem, but of course, small numbers in the study. And lipids are increased with um, a JAK1 inhibition, about 10% in both of the studies, and a little bit of CK elevation. So abracidinib, the one is most, that's the one that's most farther along in pediatrics because they included 12 plus and doesn't have a prior history. So the safety data was actually pretty clean for this, and they don't have that other prior assessment. Well, let's quickly go through the other JAKs. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry, first is the teen study. The teen study has been announced in a uh, news release, so it hasn't been peer reviewed, but I'm just gonna point out that they had the same dosing. They had at least a good or better, clearer, almost clear rates. They had what looked like pretty good safety data with very few serious adverse events or AEs leading to study discontinuation. But I, even when I say that, and, I, and I'm excited about the drug, we haven't seen the data on that, but we're eager to see the, gene, the, the teen data because it's 285 teenagers who were treated with the drug. And for us in Pizdor, that's important. So Upadacitinib also included 12 plus patients in their study. It's previously approved for use in rheumatoid arthritis with patients who are, have an inadequate response or intolerance to methotrexate is at the 15 milligram dose. And you can see that it has a fairly impressive list of warnings associated with it, including serious infections, malignancy, thrombosis, GI perfor perforations, and embryo-fetal toxicity. I think all the JAKs are gonna have embryo-fetal toxicity listed. Next slide. And just very quickly, because this again, this is a study that wasn't formally presented yet. It's just from news release, but it's different dosing. It's a different molecule, 30 milligrams, 15 milligrams, or placebo. Incredibly high EZ75 
five rates, 70 and 80%, VIGAs in the 48 to 62%. So this may have a much higher efficacy rate, but of course you can't really compare with other studies. Look at the acne. If you go down, acne was seen in 2%, 2.1% of the placebo and 17% of the UPA 30 milligrams. No one knows what, if it's really acne or if it's acne a form. It just hasn't been studied yet by acneologists, but we're interested to see. Next slide is uh, baricitinib. So they're not, their pediatric studies aren't done yet. They finished their phase threes. They'll have higher dosing, they had higher dosing studies in Europe with four milligrams as well as two milligrams and one milligram. US FDA didn't want them to study four milligrams because they were worried about the side effect, side effect profile at that higher dose. And next slide, just quickly the efficacy. Um, skip that just to see the results. It was basically two milligrams, one milligrams. You see that there's a differential dosing. This was a top analysis with it. Anyone who received any rescue was excluded from the study. But you see generally what looked to be lower EZ75 rates with baricitinib, even though the next slide, the safety profile actually did pretty well with it. So scoot on to the next slide. And the safety, there was just a paper just published like this week on a pulled safety analysis for baricitinib that showed higher relative, had some increased eczema, hepaticum, cellulitis, and pneumonia, no malignancies of GI perforations in a short period of time. Herpes is considered to be something that you can see with uh, JAK1 and JAK2 inhibition, and perhaps with JAK1 as well. And they had two major cardiovascular events and two venous thrombosis events in the four milligram dosing, one of the reasons why they didn't develop the two milligram dose in the U.S. So that is a next slide, just the summary. So these are oral potenadians, so they'll give an alternative biologic. Each drug has its own history and profile. Some have very potent efficacy, and we're just going to have to rate further studies and experience to help us to assess the short-term and long-term and how we'll then use them in, in pediatric practice, which we'll discuss more next week or a little bit when we get to our and At this point, I'll turn it over to Bob Gang. Hi, thank you very much, Larry, um, and uh, thank you so much, everyone. So I'm going to use this segment to really talk about uh, the uh, perspective from uh, the two sides of our specialty, which is allergy and also from the immunologic perspective and uh, on these emerging therapies in AD. Next slide. So, I mean, this is the two aspects that I look at when I'm evaluating um, uh, how I think of atopic dermatitis. From an immunology perspective, I mean, really understanding the immunopathophysiology of atopic dermatitis. And um, as we uh, continue uh, in our um, evolution in the understanding of this from a mechanistic standpoint, we understand that a lot of um, what we understand as allergy start with epithelial barrier defect. And what ties together uh, many elements of my specialty are the fact that all the organ systems that we deal with uh, originate from uh, the embryonic ectoderm, whether it's the bronchial linings, whether it's the skin linings, whether it's the gut linings, etc. And when you have the epithelial barrier defect, it le uh, 
leads to type 2 cytokine activation in inflammation and eventually uh, will give rise to the ability to use the biologics to target those cell surface receptors and then in a, an intracellular pathway just like Larry alluded to in the um, previous portion in the JAK-STAT pathway. And then we also want to understand it uh, because atopic dermatitis and eczema in general can be an element of immune dysregulation as part of our evaluation for primary immune deficiency disorders that can present with uh, eczema, so, uh, such as the IPEC syndrome, Ullman syndrome, hypermorphic skids in other forms, uh, as well as the hyper-IG syndromes and Wiscott-Alger syndromes, Netherton syndromes, et cetera. And then from the allergy standpoint, we understand that atopic dermatitis is really the first step in the atopic march and that continues onwards with um, hitting many other organ systems. So we have to understand sort of the comorbid atopic conditions of asthma, allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, food allergy, hives, um, allergic contact dermatitis, EOE, and chronic sinusitis with and without polyps. And the way we need to understand these comorbidities is almost as a clinical biomarker to predict degree of type 2 inflammation and how that potentially can predict response to certain types of targeted precision medicine agents. Of course, we also want to um, uh, make sure that no talk is, uh, is complete without a discussion on triggers such as food and environmental allergens as well. Next slide. So this is the immunology map of atopic dermatitis inflammation as we currently know it. And this is a very uh, redacted, overly simplistic type of map, but it kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. If we understand sort of the barrier was almost a wall of bricks, and you can think of this as the keratinocytes mean in atopic dermatitis. And, and when I uh, give this lecture to pulmonologists, these can be the, uh, the bronchial epithelium and ENT is the nasal epithelium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have the bricks coming off here, and you can see that the, uh, the wall is coming apart for numerous reasons. You can have the itch scratch cycle and uh, the scratching itself worsens this process and breaks down the wall. And you can also have uh, allergens that are playing a direct role, such as dust mites and fungi, as well as uh, cockroaches. They have intrinsic proteolytic activity in the allergens that break down this wall, as well as pollution, cigarette smoke, and uh, in addition to that, infections and, um, and how those different organisms, pathogenic organisms, can colonize the skin and lead to a dysbiosis of the skin. So this disruption of the microbiome, infections, uh, allergens with intrinsic proteolytic activity, the itch scratch cycle, as well as poor air quality pollution, all of those things help to break down the wall. And once the wall comes down, that leads to alarmants. And these are sort of alarms that our uh, epithelial barriers sending to the immune system. And these are in the forms of IL-25, IL-33, TSLP. There's going to be the first uh, anti-alarmant epithelial-derived cytokine therapies that are going to be approved for um, atopic conditions next year. There'll be an anti-TSLP for asthma, and we will likely see that percolate down to all the other atopic conditions as well. And then you have these alarmants activating um, innate lymphoid cells, and uh, these will go down a type 2 pathway, and that will be the beginnings of the release of these type 2 cytokines such as uh, IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, and 
uh, in it, uh, and then they will stimulate the CD4 cells to differentiate down the TH2 um, pathway, and then more IL-4, 13, and 5 will be released, and they'll stimulate eosinophils to proliferate and expand, and then migrate to the to the um, organ-specific level, tissue level, to cause additional damage. And the IL-4 and the IL-13 will play uh, different uh, roles in this. IL-13 will then go to the epithelial barrier and decrease antimicrobial pep um, peptides and downregulate uh, gamma interferon and lead to worsening of the uh, microbial impact on the skin. And then the IL-4 will then lead the B cells to go down the pathway of class switch recombination, making IgE and perpetuating this process even further. And this is only at the beginning of uh, the pathoimmunology uh, patho of atopic dermatitis, because as we alluded to in the past, in the previous lecture that Larry laid out for you, you have T0 going from T2 and then T22, T17, and then back to T T1 as well. As you can see here that this will eventually uh, lead to type 22 inflammation, type 17 inflammation, and some of the chronic lesions that you see, the lichenified lesions, are probably going to be more impacted by the type 17, the type 1 inflammatory pathways as well. Next slide. So this is the current understanding of the atlas of the JAK-STAT pathway. And uh, Larry kind of touched upon this in his previous discussion, but this is kind of an overview so you can see all the individual cytokine receptors and how it matches up. So all the jacks have to dimerize in order to stimulate the stats. So they're going to end up, I mean, in uh, working in tandem and in pairs as well. So as selective as you can be, it's still going to be uh, touching upon a variety of different things. It's not going to be as specific as the uh, cytokine receptor blockers that are seen in the biologics. So if you can see here that uh, IL-4, uh, for example, signal through JAK1 and JAK3, um, but JAK1 and JAK3 also play a part in multiple other cytokine receptors as well. So you're not going to have as clean of a drug as the anti-cytokine biologics, but you may be able to hit a wider spectrum of things because if you target JAK1, then you hit IL-4, but you also hit IL-6, as well as some gamma interferon, and um, in IL-2 and IL-15, IL-22, as well as IL-31 and TSLP. So you hit all these different receptors. So perhaps that's the reason why some of these JAK inhibitors may work a little faster, may have higher efficacy. Again, we don't have head-to-head -head studies uh, yet, but at least, I mean, from the individual studies, some of the numerically higher values that we see perhaps has to do with the fact that they are hitting multiple parts of this pathway. And of course, with that, there's also the downside because you're not as specific. So as you can see that some of the jacks are also um, play a role in the hematologic receptors and, uh, and in some of the other um, pathways as well. So you may end up with some of the hematologic side effects uh, that we have associated with some of the JAK inhibitors. You may see the, uh, the rationale behind why we're concerned about immunosuppression. I always like to tell people that uh, an autosomal recessive uh, skid patient is a JAK3 deficiency patient. So if you hit 
too many of this too hard, you may end up with hematologic adverse events as well as uh, immunosuppression. Interestingly, um, IL-17 does not signal through the jak stat pathway, and perhaps that's why we do not see the JAK inhibitors approaching 90% to close to 100% efficacy because a significant part of the, uh, of the subacute to chronic uh, uh, pathway inflammation AD is likely not directly touched upon by the JAK inhibitors. Next slide. So again, we have to broaden our differentials. When, uh, when we're looking at eczema, especially in the, the uh, patients who are very young, we do have to think about other primary immune dysregulatory syndromes, as outlined here, IPEX and Netherton syndrome. And then, of course, we, there's also primary immune deficiency syndromes with eczema-like features, such as hypomorphic skid with Scott Aldrich and the hyper-IgE, Job syndrome patients uh, as well. And, uh, and then, of course, there's also severe AD leading to secondary immune deficiency due to loss uh, of immunoglobulins. Next slide. So the atopia of atopic dermatitis, we have outlined here the atopic uh, march. There's the triad of asthma, allergic rhinitis, and, and eczema. Cross-sectional studies have shown that there's a lot of comorbidity that's involved in this population, especially in younger age groups. And sometimes the comorbidities often predicts more severe disease as well. Next slide. And of course, environmental allergen triggers. We do know that direct skin contact with environmental allergens can lead to exacerbations. And uh, these um, perennial um, allergens can be perennial triggers as well. And there's maybe seasonal variations, perhaps due to the exposure to the pollens. Nasal and bronchial challenges can also lead to a worsening of atopic dermatitis as well in sensitized individuals. And of course, environmental control uh, measures have improved uh, symptoms as well. And in the quad AI guidelines, subcutaneous immunotherapy allergy shots with dosamide allergen for atopic dermatitis has been shown to show efficacy, especially in the more severe patients. Next slide. Of course, the relationship between food allergy and atopic dermatitis is very complex. Everyone likes to ask that. So we have, I mean, it's a two-way street. You can have atopic dermatitis leading to food allergies because of the breakdown of the skin barrier sensitizations. And the majority of AD patients have positive allergy tests, but a small, far smaller number actually have true allergy. And of course, the risk factors for food allergy um, uh, based on LEAP guidelines include moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And of course, if you control the AD, you may be associated with lower sensitization rates on testing as well. And of course, people love to ask about food allergy contributing to atopic dermatitis. That can happen usually in kids younger than four years of age who are sensitized. And of course, we know that AD has both an IgE as well as a non-IgE T-cell driven inflammatory component. And the triggers of the AD flare in allergic patients can be immediate and delayed flares. And um, generally speaking, uh, the impact of food allergy on atopic dermatitis can increase the severity of AD with more severe AD associated with more food-related flares. Next slide. And of course, it's usually the common eight food allergen groups that may be associated with atopic dermatitis. 
Of course, allergy is not equivalent to sensitization, and positive tests only denote sensitization. It's truly with positive tests plus a positive history or a positive challenge that actually equates to allergy. So we don't want people to randomly avoid foods just from random testing. We really need to elicit a positive history, and we need to refer them uh, for uh, additional testing as well as uh, potential uh, food challenges. And, um, and we also know that a third of AD uh, children may also have a food trigger. And of course, it's important to recognize that that majority of those are going to be from the common eight food allergens. Next slide. And of course, just like we discussed, we don't want people to randomly avoid or eliminate foods just because of a positive test alone. We want to make sure that uh, we identify the true food trigger. And if there's a true IgE-mediated type 1 hypersensitivity with risk of anaphylaxis, then you definitely need to avoid and eliminate it. And if AD is refractory to maximum skin care, I always tell patients that mean treating the skin, treating the skin, treating the skin, and only if treating the skin fails or um, uh, there's complications of that, then we can consider uh, taking foods out of the diet, but that's really not going to be first-line therapy. And we do know that if dairy is a potential trigger, you can use extensively hydrolyzed formula or elemental formulas that potentially can have relief or refractory AD. And again, we discussed the, the perils of random empiric elimination of AD without verification. Next slide. So understanding the comorbidities, why it's important, because it's all immunologic disease. We want to use atopic comorbidities to understand the degree of type 2 driven atopic dermatitis really into type it's for us and stratify the cohort as a potential clinical biomarker. And and of course, I mean, if you have more atopic comorbidities, then may this demonstrate a higher T2 signature, and you have common cytokines, intracellular JAK-STAT sibling pathways. So if we can hit multiple birds with the same stone, that's a benefit. And um, there are all these target agents that do uh, have the ability or potential ability to hit multiple targets. Do pilomabs approved for asthma? Uh, so for eczema, for nasal polyps, and also down the road soon, uh, at the end of this year to next year, uh, for eosinophilic esophagitis is in phase two for food allergies. Labrokizumab almost made the cut for asthma. In the two parallel phase three studies, one of them met primary endpoint, the other one did not, and it was just a hair shy of being uh, approved for asthma, but it failed. Unfortunately, and trilokinumab had some positive signals in asthma in their phase two data as well. And omalizumab actually um, uh, has, uh, is approved for asthma and chronic urticaria, and there's some evidence potential benefit in atopic dermatitis. Next slide. So uh, I'm going to touch on this briefly. Omalizumab, there's been one prospective study in 2008 in a very small number showed that improvement in the IgA score. And then, of course, another study didn't show this, but in 2019, there was actually a randomized control study done in England. And Gideon Lack was actually the senior author on that. The 62 pediatric severe AD patients score out greater than 40. And then you had score at improvement at 24 weeks. 
as well as a, a TCS sparing effect and improvement in QOL as well. So that's one major recent positive study. Uh, we don't know where we're going to go from there from that perspective, but it is something that potentially if someone has severe asthma uh, as well as um, chronic urticaria, you may be able to consider it if someone also has AD as well. Next slide. And of course, other biologics uh, and immunomodulators that allergists and immunologists think of, you have uh, discussions of IVIG, the results are very mixed. So in general, we only use it if there is uh, consideration uh, of a primary immune deficiency, comorbid uh, uh, issues with this. And of course, gamma interferon has shown some uh, benefits in some older studies and smaller studies, but it's very expensive and it's not something that the manufacturer is pursuing as an indication at this point. Next slide. Again, I think I went through a lot of these thoughts and for the interest of time, we're going to go straight to um, the panel discussion. Okay, thank you, Bob. Um, if our panelists can pop back on, one of them is CTCL. So Cindy DeClot said, have you seen reports of CTCL erupting shortly after dupilumab I've seen one case in a young adult and wondering if there have been cases in kids. I have to say one of the tremendous successes of the research program um, was that they worked really hard to keep out funky, maybe not atopic dermatitis patients <laughs> in, being put into the early Regeneron studies. <laughs> month history of a topic term and make it into the clinical studies. They have longer courses because they didn't want in their initial studies to have patients who had CTCL with a diagnosis hadn't been made yet come into the study and then blame it on dupilumab. And I haven't seen any in kids, but I know there's some talk of it, whether it's, whether it's a transition or not is uh, or if they, you know, if they, the real question, we'd come back immediately and say, is there a typical presentation or not? Winnis, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's the same. I haven't seen any cases of it. I would, if an adult, definitely make sure to rule out that it wasn't CTCL to start. Um, but like I said, I, I do think, you know, biologics give odd rashes. I think we're seeing it with dupilumab too, that we still have to understand. <laughs> even as, as clean as we like to think things are, we're not, you know, like I said, we, we're seeing the odd facial neck eruptions. I think that's that's real too. So, you know, why that's happening, why psoriasiform rashes have happened too is, 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 I think it's real. Just have to figure out like what's, what's, what's the imbalance in those smaller cases. So Kelly has asked Cardaro, uh, anyone know if Regeneron's gonna make a calibrated syringe so we can adjust doses for administration? Also, her comments that approved dosages and intervals for younger kids may be too low and too infrequently. Thoughts for that? Thanks I mean, so I would agree. Um, having done the, the trials for the long term, I do have some patients in the th uh, 15 to 30 kilogram who did need the every two week dosing. And because of the way it's approved, they're going to have to back up now to monthly dosing. Um, and they were pretty good, but they weren't like awesome where I think it, I think it'll impact. So I agree. I mean, the hope is, you know, if, if we can, which they have the data in the studies, obviously would help. You'd have to try to push to get it off label. But if we had study data, kind of like what we do in, with the psoriasis biologics, you may be able to push for it to be off label. I've gotten some 
you know, close to 60 kilos from 200 to 300 Q2 weeks. I haven't yet tried it yet on a younger patient. Like I said, we're just starting to move them, move them into, into the clinic setting. Yeah, so, so people will notice that there's a difference, like the approved slide deck for the papillomab kids basically doesn't discuss that 200 milligram load, 100 Q2 week dosing, because it didn't do that well, and they just, they went for the, the adult loading dose in Q4 weeks. But some kids did really well with that, others didn't. But there was also like a lot more conjunctivitis in that arm. And it really raised the question of whether you needed sort of a certain amount of dupe to get beyond conjunctivitis. And some really interesting questions with that. But I do think there, you know, the optimal dosing is always hard to figure out. The adults have dealt with that too. The people who, who were on the initial studies and had adults on Q week thought that when they went to Q2 weeks, they probably could have done better with the Q week, but it's really hard to get it approved and no one really knows. And I have no idea about what they'll do in terms of syringe, syringes for the younger kids. We do know that there's, a, there's, that, there's an auto pen that's at the adult dosing, but it's only approved 12 plus, which has the 300 milligrams, but I'm not sure how they're gonna do it for a younger. No, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what um, they do for the, really young kids for dosing. Yeah, I think that that pen is going to be really beneficial uh, for the younger kids because, uh, I mean, Larry, you and I have seen a case where we had somebody who, who was very needle phobic in, in clinic and it's really not the pain that is a problem. It's actually just the anticipation of seeing the needle. And I think that for a lot of children, it's really about seeing the needle. And if you can hide it in the pen, I mean, once we actually, add, I mean, this this kid in, in, in our clinic who was screaming for 30 minutes and refused administration, but then once after the administration, she said there was like, I mean, like no symptoms. I mean, she didn't feel any much pain at all. So I think a lot of it is psychological and seeing the needle. So the sooner they can put uh, the younger, uh, the lower dose in the, in the pen, the better it will be. Um, question for Francisco Colon in Puerto Rico. Any topical JAK inhibitor in the near future? Yes, come back next Tuesday and you'll hear about the topical <laughs> ruxolitinib data, which includes kids 12 plus and um, looks pretty intriguing. It's uh, going to be approved in Japan. A formulation of delgastitinib, um, different formulations going to be studied in the States as well. Um, Diana Lee has a tough case here. <laughs> I'll turn this to the panel. A 10-year-old with moderate severe eczema, failed cyclosporine, and developed bilateral uveitis, retinal detachment, and cataracts acutely. They wanted to start dupe, but the eye surgeons didn't want to start it because she thought it would worsen surgical conjunctivitis. And she's undergoing sequential surgeries on each of her eyes. Other pediatricians is advised using defixant not clear any thoughts so i can tell you i have one adult patient but it's a little different it's very similar 30 year old who's had ad for many years actually larry took care of him long ago and it was very similar ocular issues um he had failed methotrexate but the decision was we would go ahead with it he also got cyclosporin drops for the eyes at the same time uh, it flared a little bit and I lowered his dose from 300 to 200 and that seems to have kept him at a reasonable medium for both his skin as well as the eyes. So I, I mean, it's, it's, it's something you're going to have to make sure the eye doctors are comfortable with. 
you know, the other option is get them on something else first, finish the eye surgeries and then move to Dupixent. But that's my end of one with, like I said, careful, you know, discussion with ophthalmology. Um, but, you know, he already done phototherapy, done methotrexate, he did cyclosporin very briefly. And like I said, I, I don't know. And like I said, we always worry about whether AD contributes to the eye problems. It's, it's so hard to sort out. I think when they're that severe, how much is, is that or others? Um, but like I said, that that was one one possibility. I was just going to say that, you know, even though this, this situation is a little bit different, you know, the prevalence of conjunctivitis was definitely higher in those who had already had, you know, pre-existing conjunctivitis. So that's another consideration. Yeah, I think that most of my patients who currently have conjunctivitis have a history of allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, and I make sure that their treatment for that is optimized. And then I've been having good success with eye drop usage and some warm compresses, almost like a wet dressing sort of to the eyes. And again, I mean, just to make a, just to make a quick, I mean, plug for, 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 for what we do in allergy, I mean, if this is a patient who does have a significant amount of other uh, environmental allergen comorbidities that may contribute to some allergic uh, conjunctivitis, we potentially could use uh, allergens uh, immunotherapy to treat uh, several birds with one stone if, um, if there's also some refractory AD uh, on there as well. So, I mean, it's, it's something that uh, the pattern sensitization may be something worth looking into. Quick Jack questions. So Rod Phillips was asking about absorption levels, clearance levels, drug levels, interaction. And, you know, we don't have time to go through all of that because most of that data isn't released yet. But um, these are fairly short timeframes. One of the issues uh, and, and fairly short half-lives. One of the issues that we'll face with each of these drugs is what happens when you stop them. Some drugs seem to have very quick um, recurrence of disease and potentially rebound beyond the recurrence. That's one of the things that's going to be figured out over time. In terms of, um, so there's no labeling yet for apricidinib, eupidacidinib, the CYP34A inhibitors like tetaconazole are an issue with some of these drugs, so they say to be careful with co-administration. I'm not sure what other drug interactions we'll see with them. Um, back to Dupi. This is a straightforward question. It's a good one. Um, how, what, what do you advise parents who ask how long the patient will be on deployment? Um, I'll go first. <laughs> I'm happy to volunteer. So when I start a patient on Dupixent or Dupilumab, I usually see them back at three months. And I tell them that in my experience, patients tend to either respond or not. And it doesn't appear to be that anybody falls into a shades of gray zone. And that for most patients who tend to respond and have a good outcome, it tends to be quicker rather than later. And that probably by three months, they'll look much better when I see them. Although I have had a couple of delayed slower responses that appear much better and clear at the six month interval, not three. I do usually have patients hold off on live vaccines and vaccines altogether um, during the three month time that I start them on dupilumab. And then at the three month visit, I talk to their primary care provider about the non-live vaccines and have them resume their schedule. And I've not had any consequence from that. Um, I tell patients once they're clear that we really don't know much about if we're going to stop, eventually we will, and about stopping and starting and the hazards of potential antibody development. But I say I'd like to have you clear for at least six to nine months after I see you, so it would probably be a 12-month time period. And that's kind of the, the I give them a one-year bandwidth. I tell, so I, I, I want my, I, I try to 
um, prophylaxis against them considering coming off of it unless we're going to come off it. So I actually say this is a long-term therapy. We plan on being on it for a year. You'll start to get a sense of how you're doing it three to four months, but we'll really be six months before we probably give it up. We don't plan on giving it up. And after one year, we'll talk about the other years as we go down. Now, so Mike Cork had some of the worst patients and the first patient, first kid patients in the world on Dupixent, starting to talk about some of his kids where he burnt out their disease after a few years. Some of his worst patients are in remission. This is, of course, one of the questions we'll discuss last, I mean, next week, which is, you know, are, are we going to be modulating disease course and with how long with therapy? And we just don't have the data, I think. And, <laughs> so. and it's interesting because, because we're, um, uh, I think I agree with all the things that the other panelists have mentioned. And, and, and Larry is right that we don't have the clinical data on this. Uh, in our group, um, in our center, in our multidisciplinary center, we actually have a translational study that's ongoing in looking at uh, T-cell clonal changes pre and three months post uh, uh, dupilumab, and then also looking at T-cell functionality studies into seeing whether we're actually making an impact, at least on the in vitro level, in changing and modulating the immune system and, uh, and, and, and modifying and pushing it into a different direction. So, so the thing is, I mean, um, it's uh, that, that helps answer the question of the new, uh, modulation and modification. That doesn't answer the question about the duration. And for a lot of uh, my patients, I mean, they're getting it for, um, uh, for multiple uh, atopic comorbidities. So a lot of times I'm looking at it and I'm kind of counseling the parents, not just from the standpoint of AD, but also, I mean, well, you also don't want your asthma to, uh, to get worse. You also don't want your nasal symptoms to get worse. And, and we even have some comorbid patients who have um, gut disease from EOE. So, so the thing is that we're looking at it from um, a variety of different standpoints, because this is something that touch upon all those stuff in uh, different aspects. I'd like to hang, uh, hang or keep some of those questions and bring them over to next week, especially questions about what do you do if do people wane in their dupilumab response? Do you do concurrent therapy or add-on therapy? I think that'll fit very well in the next week's discussion. I wanted to thank the panel uh, for their presentations and for the great conversation. I thank the attendees. We're excited that you, uh, people have, uh, have joined us for this. Uh, again, we'll do a webinar next week. We'll go through more details on topicals and then sort of uh, 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 emerging algorithms. Then we're going to have podcasts that go out. And after the podcast, we're going to do just sort of more open discussion with groups and panelists as well. Thank you all for attending. I thank Mike Siegel and the Peter group for putting this together and making this look pretty flawless from a Zoom standpoint, which is great. Everyone have a great night and thank you.